this chapter, the 14th, referred to as Oxen of the Sun by Joyce and now by us, is a hard one. There's no question about it. And it's in contrast to the previous one, which was relatively, as far as this book goes, easy reading that we could follow here. We are brought up against language that at first seems impenetrable, especially at the beginning. And the action that you, Jerry, will detail seems to be almost hidden behind or in the language. We almost inevitably have to go two ways, towards the reality that this fiction depicts and more and more towards the way in which it is presented. So the style, the manner of writing seems to push itself into the foreground. We'll deal with that a bit later, but first we will hear what's happening. We've come to the location of the main action of the chapter, which is Hollis Street Hospital. As I say, the main action, as far as I can gather, takes place here. They leave and go to a pub at the end, but otherwise they're here. And we left Bloom on the beach, asleep. We assume he got a tram later to Hollis Street. The tram would have brought him right to outside the hospital. He comes to the door, which is opened by a nurse, Callan, whom Bloom knows because when the Blooms lived in Hollis Street, they lived in her house nine years ago. He, knowing that Nurse Callan had been keen on a Dr. O'Hare, asks after Dr. O'Hare and is told by Nurse Callan that he had died three years ago in Anglesey. Her, he asked, if O'Hare, doctor, tidings sent from far coast, and she... With grateful sigh, him answered that O'Hare, doctor, in heaven was. Mrs. Purefoy, we understand, has been in labour for three days now. Nurse Callan says she never saw such a hard one. Dixon, a young medical student, comes along and recognises Bloom. Because the traveller Leopold came there to be healed, for he was sore wounded in his breast by a spear wherewith the horrible and dreadful dragon was smitten him. He had treated Bloom in the Mater Hospital, which is in Eccles Street, for a bee sting a short time before, and he invites Bloom into a party, you could say, in one of the rooms on the ground floor of the hospital. Then there's a description of the cutlery and beer and sardines that are on the table, but it's very hard to find out that it's in such obscure language. And there was a vat of silver that was moved by craft to open, in the which lay strange fishes without end heads. Bloom is offered beer, which he pours into his glass, but immediately pours into his next-door neighbour's glass because he doesn't want it. So it's always good to get straight who is there. And as far as I can see, is there's Vincent Lynch, William Madden, Frank Costello, Lenehan, Dixon, whom we don't know, Carruthers, who's Scottish, Stephen, and then Bloom joins the party. So we already know Lynch, and we know Lenehan, and we know Stephen, and of course we know Just Bloom. a question, is it likely that medical students mainly and others could just assemble in a hospital room and drink beer? Well, there would be a common room, I would say, for them. Whether they should be drinking beer there or not is something else. And the learning night... Let pour for child Leopold a draught, and halp thereto the while all they that were there, drank every each. Well, of course, the talk that goes on there is about birth and the rest, and the subject is, in case of danger, should the mother or the child be saved? 
And of course, the consensus of opinion among the students is that the mother should be saved, but the church, of course, rules that it should be the child that will be saved. Bloom, when the question is put to him, typically the prudent member evades an answer. And laying hand to jaw, he said, dissembling, as his wont was, that as it was informed him, who had ever loved the art of physic as might a layman, and agreeing also with his experience of so seldom seen an accident, it was good for that mother church be like at one blow had birth and death pence, and in such sort delivery he skipped their questions. Here we see Stephen in a rather bad light. He says, he who stealeth from the poor giveth to the Lord. We remember that that was Gogarty's tag. And then he says he has money because he had been paid for a poem. He doesn't say that he got it from teaching. There's a lot of blasphemy about Our Lady. And Costello starts to sing a rather obscene song. About a wench that was put in pod of a jolly swashbuckler in Almany, which he did now attack. The first three months she was not well, Staboo. When here, Nurse Quigley from the door angrily bid them hiss, you should shame you. When Nurse Quigley talks about the birth going on upstairs, he should have some respect, and all the rest of the people in the room turn on him. Then they start, as usual, in among students, someone has to be picked on. So they pick on Stephen and they start chiding him about his sexual exploits. I thought it was um, this man Costello that they're chiding, not Stephen. I, I thought that just shows <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, not yeah, easy yeah, to yeah, find yeah, out. Yeah, it's uh, not easy to find. Yeah. Uh, Stephen well, obviously makes the remark that life ran high in those days anyway. And then mention is made of Zarathustra. And he says, Professor of French Letters. Of course, this again is Mulligan's phrase about more. Then there's a thunderclap. A black crack of noise in the street here, a lack bald back. And Stephen is cowed as Joyce would have been. Joyce was terrified of thunder and, of course, is jeered by his companions for doing so. Bloom, on the other hand, tries to calm him down and reassure him. And we have a whole lot of things as in The Pilgrim's Progress. We have Cavill, who is Lynch, sometimes Godly, who is Madden, Ape Swillale, who is Costello, and so on. Boastard, who is Stephen, and Karma, who is Bloom. But was young Boastard's fear vanquished by Karma's words? No. Then it switches the action to outside, and we find Mulligan coming back from the soiree on his own, from um, more swine. Very close. <coughs> Very close, yes. It's only <coughs> round the corner, really. And Mulligan is caught in a shower, a very heavy shower, and shelters and meets Bannon, who it turns out is up to do an exam to go into the army. So, so much for Millie's romance. Anyway, back in the hospital, Lennon wants to get at Stephen, it appears, and wants to talk about the letter that's in the paper about foot and mouth disease. He is also hungry, and he has his eyes on the sardines and the bread. He lives by his wits, so he wants to talk about foot and mud. And then, of course, they say it's not an Irish bull. And this brings him on to Adrian IV and his bull, giving to Henry II the power to occupy Ireland. And a plumper and a portly of bulls as he never shit on shamrock. He'd horns galore, a coat of gold, and a sweet, smoky breath coming out of his nostrils, so that the women of our island, leaving dough balls and rolling pins, followed after him, 
hanging his bulliness in daisy chains. Mulligan and Bannon then arrive, and Mulligan hands a card around which he has had printed in the afternoon. Mr. Malachy Mulligan, fertilizer and incubator, Lambay Island. Mulligan sees Bloom, of course, and asks him if he's in need of medical attention, and is told of Mrs. Purify that that's the reason why Bloom is there. Dixon asks Mulligan about his own paunch, and Mulligan said that that belly never bore a bastard, of course. Then Bannon shows Millie's picture to the person that's sitting beside him. He doesn't know Millie is Bloom's daughter, and of course Bloom doesn't know that Bannon is the student that was referred to in Millie's letter earlier in the morning. Anyway, Bannon shows the picture to his neighbour. Nurse Callan then comes in and tells Dixon that Mrs. Purefoy has at last been delivered. And, of course, this is greeted by a lot of vulgar comments, which you'd again expect from medical students at the time. Strike me silly, said Costello, a low fellow who was fuddled. A monstrous fine bit of cow flesh. I'll be sworn she has rendezvoused you. What, your dog? Have you away with them, gadsbud? Bloom wonders what we all wonder when we look at wild students, how, when they get their exams, they suddenly become ultra-respectable, join the establishment, and say what awful things students do, and terrible things like that. It appears then that Broome doesn't fulfil his marital duties, but then the general talk turns on monstrous births, superstitions, and abnormalities. And a thing that I don't know, Mulligan tells of Haynes, an apparition of Haynes. Now, what did this take place at Boers? Did he arrange to see Haynes at Westland Row Station at ten past eleven while they were at both at Moors? Or does Haynes come after him to the hospital and stick his head in and say, look, I'll see you at ten past eleven at Westland Row Station? I just don't know, and I can't make it out from the text. Bloom recalls his life as a boy and a young man and his first sexual encounter with one Bridie Kelly in Hatch Street. He will never forget the name. And yet, with all of this, he still has no son. Costello talks to Stephen about their school days. Lynch says that Stephen better write something other than the few poems that he has written. He better show something of his genius. Lenhan says that he could not leave his mother an orphan. This is the sort of smart aleck remark that you would expect from Lenehan. That silence is Stephen again. Yes, uh, Stephen is very upset by this. The young man's face grew dark. All could see how hard it was for him to be reminded of his promise and of his recent loss. And then the gold cup is discussed, and then a discussion on determining the sex of children and infant mortality. Um, Bloom remembers his earlier meetings with Stephen when he was a boy in Round Town. And then suddenly Stephen shouts, Burks! Out flings my lord Stephen, giving the cry! And they all rush out of the hospital into the street. Then we hear that Mulligan's aunt is determined to write to Stephen's father about the bad example that Stephen is given to her nephew. And, of course, which exactly mirrors Simon's Stephen father and determination in the carriage on the way to the funeral to write to her about the bad example that Mulligan is giving to Stephen. So we have a mirror image there. So when they go into the pub, of course, there is always an interaction of something. 
we find bantam lines in the pub. Drowning a sorrow, not having taken Bloom's tip and been, haven't been put off. Again, the gold cup is there. Mulligan, at this stage, slips off. Stephen, of course, buys drinks for everyone, twice. Bannon eventually recognises who Bloom is. A lot of them run out to hear a fire engine and run after it. Stephen and Lynch go together up Hollow Street again and down Denzel Lane, and Bloom follows them. We presume they're on their way to get the train at Westland Row. That's it. That's the action. But to extract that much out of the thing is a hell of a job. Yeah. Again, Bloom is on the way home and he stops at the hospital for several reasons. He is concerned about the birth. He still delays coming home. So this is an Odysseus who does not hurry to get home, but delays. And there's also the thunderstorm coming. So there are several reasons there. To summarize what you said, we have a group of young men talking, mm. one thing or the other, I'm hearing. and the only important thing is a birth is taking place, but that is taking place off stage, just as whatever Molly and Boylan are doing is taking place off stage. We are not there. The other split is the language which hides or obscures much of what we can extract, sometimes without any particular certainty. We, we can still argue, and a lot of argument uh, goes on. So it's a very, you might say, chapter that doesn't open up to us. And here, and I don't like to, to do this normally, it's useful to hear what Joyce said about it. At some stage, he explained it to his friend in Zurich. He says, introduced by a Celestian Tacitian prelude, whatever he means by that, and he calls it the unfertilized ovum. Then, by way of earliest English alliterative and monosyllabic and Anglo-Saxon, then by way of Mandeville, then Mallory, Mortatur, then a passage of Milton, Taylor, and so on and so on. So, uh, he goes through English prose literature, and he says this procession is also linked back at each part subtly with the foregoing episode of the day, and besides this, with the natural stages of development of the embryo and the periods of faunal evolution in general. He goes on like that and then says, how's that for high? In other words, what Joyce says is he is trying to compare the development of an embryo, which results in the birth, with the development of the English prose style. Yes, well, I always heard, received wisdom, of course, that it's in nine parts representing yeah. the nine months. He but said, I can't no, see said the, that, the divisions. Yeah. It seems that at a certain time early in the stage, Joyce really tried to have exact equivalence right. to that. But to me, it seems he, he gave it up. That, or right? it was, he, well, I'm glad he did, to hear that. He did study medical. But there's an early article that tries mm. to, to do this. Now, of course, what Joyce does here is a tour de force, with often more force than tour. Right. Joyce is clearly showing off. Normally, when you're a writer now, you can't write the way Swift did mm. or uh, Shakespeare did. And I think Joyce said, the hell, I can, only better. I should say, I think Joyce was showing off to the detriment of the book, because who can read this? I 
quite understand if somebody says, well, here it's going too far. Mm. Or you could say, I understand the principle, mm. but I don't think it's successful. Mm. I think there's another aspect that, of course, interests me, that this chapter is really a series of translations. Not translations into another language, but back in time. And as Joyce says, he begins with an imitation of Old English, and then he goes through Middle English and various authors, some known, Swift, Bunyan, Dickens and so on, and some period styles to show the development. The biological equivalent is, as the 19th century claimed, and it may be true or not, that each individual organism repeats the whole evolution. And so this is a chapter of evolution, and he wanted to do this, and also the evolution of language. Yes, but it's ironic that the most difficult part is at the beginning. As you get into yep. it, yep. you become more familiar. Yep. You're more likely to have read Swift yep. than you are to have read mm-hmm. Old English. Yep. So if you can get through the beginning, yep. the oh, yeah. easier it becomes it, and the oh, more yeah. enjoyable. The, the more we come to the modern times, yes, yes of yes. course. It begins in a very strange way, something I don't even know how to pronounce uh, it says Deschil, yeah. Hollis, Eamus, and for better or worse, and uh, somehow I wish it hadn't happened, Joyce told this to his earliest commentator, who explains it that Deschil being an Irish word meaning sunwards or south, Hollis would be Hollis Street, and this Eamus, which looked like Seamus or something, has often <laughs> been confused with an Irish name, uh, as a matter of fact, would then be the Latin, let's go south to Hollis Street, and that is repeated three times. You get three times three. There you have a nine, if you mm. want. Uh, Just, it's also an incantation, as yeah. it were. And it is a sort of invocation. It's based on a Latin fertility poem, an early kind of thing. But it's outside. Nobody says it. Nobody thinks of it. Mm. It is in a way imposed. It's timeless and all of that. And I wonder what we'd do with it if Joyce hadn't tipped us off through a commentator. Once we get to Anglo-Saxon, you certainly see Bloom hat holding, and you can really see the embarrassment of Bloom uh, meeting somebody he knows and he was a bit fond of and all of that. But then there's some very, very difficult chapters. And as you said, Stephen, who is far gone, has drunk a lot all day, is holding forth. Now, Stephen is never too clear when he's sober. Yeah, well, I don't think we see Stephen sober after the library scene. He goes on drinking from there on out. Flap! Ut implorentor scripture! Strike up a ballot! Then out spake medical dick to his comrade medical dick! But it's here that, for the first time, Bloom and Stephen are in the same place. I don't think Stephen takes much notice of Bloom. But Bloom realises that the others abuse Stephen a little bit. And I think in this chapter, in the maternity hospital, Bloom begins to take a maternal or paternal, a parental (coughs) protective interest in Stephen. And from then on, he follows him. And so you might say a climax, when the two really come together, is hidden in this uh, welter of words. And now Sir Leopold, that had of his body no man-child for an heir, looked upon him, his friend's son, and was shut up in sorrow for his forepast happiness. And as sad as he was that him failed a son of such gentle courage, for all accounted him of real parts, so grieved he also in no less measure for young Stephen, for that he lived riotously with those wastrels and murdered Eddie's goods with whores. The other thing is, 
each paragraph, sometimes the two together, has an entirely different style, entirely different perspective. As you say, once it widens out, mm. when we have the style of the 18th century mm. diarist Pepys and Pepes, Evelyn, yes. where we get an overview, um, mm. where the turf barge is mentioned, and the funeral, and then the one thing you singled out, and I think that's a good sample passage in the style of the Gothic novel, mm. where Mulligan, out of the blue, we are not prepared for that, tells a story probably of the party at Moore's where Haynes turns up and this is transposed into a ghost story mm. or somebody who has done a crime is, um, mm. is working it off. It's connected with a child's murder case mm. and all of that. Yeah. We don't quite know what exactly Buck Mulligan is doing, but he is doing one mm. of his Correct. very clever uh, stitches and it, it's like a ghost and it's also a jumble mm. of echoes. Almost everything links back. But Malachi's tale began to freeze them with horror. He conjured up the scene before them. The secret panel beside the chimney slid back, and in the recess appeared Haynes. Which of us did not feel his flesh creep? It's as though Stephen heard it in a drunken state and didn't quite get it. Yes, yeah, and uh, yeah. his interpretation yeah. of what yeah. Mulligan said. He had a portfolio full of Celtic literature in one hand, in the other a file marked poison. Surprise, horror, loathing were depicted on all faces while he eyed them with a ghastly grin. Yes, it is true. I am the murderer of Samuel Childs. And we haven't even talked of the end of the chapter. No, Because haven't. these parodies end with, I think, a, a passage in the manner of Carlyle. Mm. And then, as they rush out... Somebody utters a powerful mm. word, and it's the name of a pub, Bucks. Mm. Mm. And suddenly they realize it's time, closing time is mm. near, and they all rush out and proceed to the pub. And then we don't have these parodies anymore, but we have what looks like recordings of what they said. Speakers are unidentified. Nobody says anything straightforwardly. They use dialect, Scottish, uh, mm. Latin, um, Pigeon English mm. and all sorts of things. Slang. And slang, uh, Cockney. Mm. And it is very hard to figure out, and Ooh, many so have tried <laughs> their, their wits at it, to say who is doing what mm. and who is saying mm. what. A lot of it can be attributed to Mulligan because he has that kind mm. of gift. And uh, there are some marvellous funny passages when he says a, a book by two designing females, which of course is uh, the Yeats mm -hmm. books, mm -hmm. whose books were designed by his sisters, yes. but here they become mm. designing sisters and all of that. Mm. So there's a lot of jokes in it, but it's very, very difficult to... Uh, it is as though a microphone were put there, and again, it's totally unlikely that a gift of even inspired Irishmen could be so witty at the spur of the moment. Eyes have it to be printed and bound at the Druidrum press by two designing females. Calf covers of pissed on green. Last word in our shades. Most beautiful book come out of Ireland, my time. Silentium. Get a spurt on. Tension. Proceed to nearest canteen and there annex liquor stores. March. Tramp, 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 the boys are... Attitudes. Marching. Beer. Beef. Business. Bibles. Bulldogs. The chapter ends, by the way, with an American voice. They mm. see a poster of the oh, yes. evangelist, Alexander Dowie, yeah. who, by the way, wasn't in Ireland, he was in Great Britain, at the, in England at the but time. But he was a real person. He was a real person, and somebody 
imitates an American evangelist in a sort of American voice. But it's quite interesting that the chapter, that is, among other things, the evolution of the English language, Mm. ends with an American (laughs) inflection, (laughs) as though to say this is the way it will go. Go. And how right he was. Alexander J. Christ Dowie, that's my name, that's yanked to glory most half this planet from Frisco Beach to Vladivostok. The deity ain't no nickel-time bum show. I put it to you that he's on the square and a corking fine business proposition. He's the grandest thing yet, and don't you forget it. Shout salvation in King Jesus. Among these young men, or in the case of Lena, not so young men, Bloom seems to be the only one who is a father, actually. And he is older and he is more serious often even a bit put off by the hilarity and the obscenity of the young man. So he's, he's also made fun of again. Hmm? Yeah. Mac Mulligan uh, does it uh, and others. To revert to Mr. Bloom, who, after his first entry, had been conscious of some impudent mocks, which he, however, had borne with, being the fruits of that age upon which it is commonly charged that it knows not pity. In the letter, Joyce said, in the Homeric uh, framework, it is the crime against fecundity by sterilizing the act of coition. Now, in Homer, it was the killing of the sacred cows, they were actually a female, of Helios, that is the crime that determined things and that killed all the companions. That is said very early in the opening of the Odyssey. And Joyce now puts it into the sterilizing uh, act of coition. Now, some read have taken this at face value, and I find it very hard to follow that Joyce meant this to be a tract against birth control. But he put up some kind of equivalent. There's a thunder, a thunderstorm that shipwrecks Odysseus, who then afterwards is the only one to swim ultimately ashore. And, of course, there's a lot of cattle again in it uh, for the mouse disease. Uh, it so happens that the director of the hospital, the master, is called Sir Andrew Horn, who was the real one. So you get Horn <coughs> very early, and in Horn lots of things come together. Cattle, even a reference to erection, have you got the horn? Yeah. So a lot of things come together. Just in this chapter there's a lot of echoes in fact more and more the book of course repeats its own and recirculates its own material <laughs> 